So I want you to imagine someone asks you a question. They say to you, you do me a favor. Can you tell me exactly what Jesus Christ has done for you and what that has to do with me? Lost person says to you, can you do me a favor? Can you tell me exactly what Jesus Christ has done for you and what that matters to me? wonder how you'd answer that question. In fact, the good news is we have a text that addresses that today. And we are going to spend our time focusing on what exactly Jesus has done for you. So we're in Luke chapter 8, and we are in this marvelous story of Jesus finishing his trip across the lake. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is in verse 26, I'm sorry. And they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he'd worn no clothes and had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him to not command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told how the demon, I'm sorry, and those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is a word of the Lord. It's just a flat, crazy narrative. We're not going to be able to get fully into it in one sermon. I actually thought about doing it over several weeks, but I thought, no, we'll keep moving. Jesus has cast out demons, but here Jesus will cast out at least 2,000 demons at one time. How strong are demons? Demons are fallen angels. How strong are angels? Second, Second Kings 19, I think it's Second Kings 19, one angel kills 185,000 Assyrians. They're not people strong, they're supernaturally strong. How smart are demons? Well, let me ask you this question. Have you ever seen a baby angel? You're not going to see an angel. Well, I'm just going to keep moving past that comment. Angels were created at the beginning. They don't have babies. So they've been around since the beginning of creation. By sheer experience, they have so much practical knowledge, incredible intelligence, incredible strength, and Jesus shows up, and you have a guy totally out of control, possessed by 2,000 demons, and Jesus just tells him to get out. Let's play Bible trivia. How many demon-possessed people interactions do we have in the Old Testament? Doo -doo. 
Got a four and he went higher or lower? Jan, say lower. Good, good. It's lower than four. Anyone want to take the next guess? One. What do you think, Jay? Three. You're all wrong. It's zero. You don't see any interactions with demon-possessed people in the Old Testament. Now, someone's going to go, Genesis 6. No, that's not interacting with demon-possessed people. How about New Testament apart from the Gospels? How many interactions with demon-possessed people? Arguably two. Tops. Arguably. But in the Gospels, in the life of Christ, demonic possession shows up all over because Jesus shows up and they know who he is, why he came, and what he will do. Do you know who he is, why he came, and what he'll do? Anyone read 1 John this week? Don't raise your hand. That's a Sunday school question. Part of why Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. And the question is, can he do it? Can he 2 Corinthians 4, 4 it? Can he Ephesians 2, 2 it? You know what those are? Look them up. Genesis 3.15, can he crush the serpent's head? Because if Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, he has to be stronger than all the forces of the kingdom of darkness. And what he shows us here, in part, is that he not only can do it, he will do it. And here's a little fun. If you look at Luke 11.20, it's a fun little comment, we'll get to it in about six years, where Jesus says, I cast out demons by the finger of God, his very finger. Usually in the Old Testament it talks about the strong, mighty arm of God. Jesus is saying, I use my finger to cast out a demon. Poke him with my little pinky. This is immense power, but that's not really primarily what this is about here. Jesus is displaying power, so this, this demonically possessed man who, who cuts himself, who lives in the tombs, who can't be contained, under guard shackle, breaking a shackle, runs away, comes to Jesus immediately when he comes to shore and falls down in front of him. Why? I believe it's Mark 5, 6. Uh, Mark 5, Matthew 8 are parallel accounts, but in Mark 5 in the King James, it says, the man came and worshipped Jesus. It's a bad translation. It's fell down. The man came down and fell down before Jesus. It's a, it's a James 2, 19. It's a shuddering demon thing. Why the demons? When Jesus showed up, you see so much demonic possession and oppression because the demons couldn't hide. Remember Luke 4 in the synagogue? The man possessed by the demon in the synagogue? Jesus shows up, they couldn't hide. Demons like to work in quiet behind the scenes, but in the Gospels, during the earthly ministry of Jesus, they know who he is, why he came, and what he will do, and they beg him, beg him. Listen to this, demons begging him, don't send us into the abyss! It's too early, I thought we had more time. Please! They're scared to death of him. They got good eschatology. And they ask if they could go into the pigs. And we see an example of suicide. Thank you. Pigs don't usually jump over cliffs, and they can actually swim. Why would he send them into the pigs to show what came out of the man, to show the intentions of the devil and his demons? But then look at, look at this. The power of Jesus is on display. Get out. Please, please, can we go to the pigs? It's fine, you can go to the pigs. They go to the pigs by his word. He has power over the entire 2,000 demons, a legion living in this man by his word. They're out. 
Then the herdsmen, they go into town to tell everyone what happened, the city and the country. The people come out and they don't go, thank you for saving this man. They don't even go, thank you for fixing him. He was such a pain in the neck to us. They say, Jesus, please leave. I mean, think about what they see, this demoniac who's living in the tombs, cutting himself, screaming day and night, breaking the shackles. I'm sure he's hurting people when they come by. He's sitting clothed in Jesus, at Jesus' feet, in his right mind, and they ask Jesus to leave. Miracles don't save people. Because in, in a lost state, lost people don't have eyes to see truth. When we preach the gospel, you can't make it clever or attractive. You can just preach it and ask God to please use it to save people. But only God can save people. Do you see that? They're terrified of Jesus. Why? They've seen power. And they ask him to leave. I mean, just chew on that a minute. We would never ask Jesus to leave us alone, would we? And notice what Jesus says. They ask him to leave, and what does he functionally say? Okay, bye-bye. Never comes back again. Then you got this guy. Please take me with you. And Jesus says, no. I want you to stay, and I want you to go and tell what God has done for you. Isn't that beautiful? Where in the Bible does Jesus say that he is God? John and I were talking about this recently, right? Basically, every passage we've looked at in Luke so far. Who who healed this man of his demonic possession? Jesus, right? Go and tell people what God has done for you. Did Jesus pray to God to heal the man? Jesus showed up. Legion fell down. Jesus said, get out. This man had, I will argue he is saved. You'll see why in a minute, hopefully. He's a full-on equipped missionary already. No, no Bible school training, no seminary, right? No Sunday school class, no church membership classes. Jesus says, go and tell what God has done for you. Well, here's the question that we started with. What did God do for this guy? Well, how about we do this? He went from the land of the dead, living amongst the tombs, to the land of the living. Amen? He went from insane to sane. Amen? From naked to clothed, from hopeless to hope, from harmed by the devil to healed by God, to aimlessly wandering, to sitting at Jesus' feet. Amen? By God's power, through God's grace, for God's glory, in his love. Well, darn, that sounds like my story, too. Sounds like your story, too, if you're saved. You have gone from the land of the dead to the land of the living, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Amen? From insanity to sanity. The world lives in utter insanity by the wisdom of man, but yet we have been saved to live by the wisdom of God. Naked to clothe. Why was he naked? Remember the sons of Sceva who tried to cast out the demons? Remember what what happened to them? They ran out naked. Fun little verse, Revelation 3.18. Jesus invites us to put on clothes of righteousness to cover the shame of our nakedness. Demonic is always about nakedness and exposing and shame. In fact, culturally, watch what people wear. It's a little scary. 
the less clothes. And the Bible's pretty, pretty clear about how to dress. Read it. You know? I'm not saying it applies to our culture directly. But, but humility, has covering, has something to do pointing us to Christ. Where unabashed exposure and shame. So the man's naked. He's clothed. We were naked in our sin, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Remember back in Genesis, Adam and Eve grabbed some leaves. God killed an animal, made them some clothes pointing to Christ. Hopelessness to hope, harmed by the devil to healed by God. Do you understand every lost person is at the, the mercy of the devil whose desire is to steal, kill, harm, and destroy? Did you know that? All without them realizing he's doing it and causing them to think they're having fun along the way with false hope. Aimless wandering. What's the purpose of life? Go ask your lost friends, what's the purpose of life? But do you have the answer? So the man would break his shackles, run in the desert, aimlessly wandering in the desert. What is the purpose of life? You see, that's what we were all doing apart from Christ. Amen? To know God and enjoy him forever is what the purpose of life is. This man, by grace through faith, was able to know who Jesus was. And as we'll see, enjoy him forever. In in eternity, we'll get that. And he sat and rested at Jesus' feet. Do, Do you see what Jesus has done for this man? So I'll ask you this question. Actually, let me, let me flip it and then come back. Fun little side note. Did you know to heal this man, Jesus had to change places with him? I was reading this text, this struck me. For this man to be saved, Jesus had to go at the end of his earthly ministry and lay among the tombs, amen? For this man who cut himself with stones... Jesus' body was cut and beaten and afflicted, amen, at the end of his earthly ministry, amen? This man who was naked that Jesus clothed, at the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus who was clothed was stripped naked, right? This man who was shackled and under guard when he was possessed by demons, who Jesus freed from the shackle, at the end of his earthly ministry, was Jesus not shackled and under guard? Why would Jesus do that for this man? Why would Jesus do that for you? Can we pause a minute? Because we could look at the power of Jesus, but if we slow down and look at the mercy and grace and compassion of Jesus, who was willing to put our filth upon himself so he might put his righteousness upon us, my goodness, who is this Jesus that we are dealing with? He is mighty to save, but he is compassionate and loving at the same time. What do we have to fear? Why would we not want to trust in Jesus and walk with Jesus? And here's the thing. My friends, do you know that you and I are saved to be a go and tell people what God has done for you people? Y'all know Matthew 28, 18 through 20? I got to tell you, I have more conversations with people trying to find the out for that verse. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's our commission. If we're saved, we're John 20, 21 people. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Someone's going to go, but wait, that's for the apostles. Stop, it's not, because we're also a 1 Peter 2.9 people. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
We, in fact, are left on this earth in Christ in very large part to go and tell people what God has done for us. But the struggle we have is we forget. We don't ponder that. We don't meditate upon it. We, we don't rejoice in it. Instead, you want to know what we functionally do too often? We run back to the tombs. We live like we lived when we were lost because it seems like so much fun. We live by the wisdom of the world. We hope in the promises of the world because we forget who Christ is and who we are. And listen, the power of Christ to save is the same power at work in you to sanctify. Did you know that? We're a people who focus on the cross but forget about the resurrection. We in Christ are people who have been raised with Christ. We have the power of God at work within us so that we might know God and enjoy him forever. So, so here's what, what I want you to take out of this. We could preach four to five sermons out of this. It's an incredible text. They sail across, they land on the shore. We could just sit and slow down. What is going in the minds of the disciples at this point? Remember they just had that storm thing? Jesus just stopped the wind and the waves. They're sitting in the boat. They got to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right? That was a whole conversation the rest of the boat, right? Whoa. They would point, whoa, whoa. They make it to land, and you know, they're like, oh, oh. So then, whoa. And I was like, oh. They step on the shore, and the demonia, actually, there are two demon possessed men come down to them. Y'all read the parallel accounts. Luke focuses just on one. And you know, they're like, what? This guy's freaky. 2,000 demons, he will bust you up. And he comes running down, stripped naked. I can't imagine what he looked like. His body's all scarred up. He's screaming. He's running and he falls down. These poor disciples, what is going on with them? You imagine the emotional roller coaster they're going through? But they keep seeing again and again and again the power of Jesus. Now, we could talk about the mercy of Jesus going over to this Gentile country of pig farmers to save this demon-possessed man. We could talk about that. I hear this sermon often preached on Jesus' attentiveness to the one. It's true. I don't think that's the main point of the text. But he goes to this place. The man comes down, falls down in front of him. And then the power of Jesus, 2,000 demons, Jesus just says, get out. They say, what are you doing here? It's the wrong time. Well, where are they going? To the abyss. What does that mean? At the end of the age, Jesus will cast every demon and devil himself into the fiery abyss and lock them up forever. And they will live under the torment and wrath of God for all eternity. And do you know what the devil's delight is? To get as many people to join him there as possible. Every lost person you know, the devil's goal is to have them join him in the abyss for all of eternity. Just think about that for a moment. And that's where we were going. Hopelessly, helplessly, unabashedly on our way to the abyss with the devil. But Jesus stepped in. Jesus, who came to destroy the works of the devil, shows he has the power to destroy the works of the devil, to defeat the devil himself, and to save people by himself, from himself, and for himself. Amen? But don't think that the devil doesn't have a goal with saved people, too. 
The devil has a desire to cause you to deny God, to slander God, to rob God of glory. He knows he can't get you in the abyss, but he sure wants to shipwreck your faith along the way. But we're not subject or captive to his power. We don't have to fall victim to the, to the ways he works because we have God himself dwelling in us. So you got this guy runs up, and, and this is one of those guys who you would not expect to be a, a good member of a church. But look at the end what Jesus calls this guy to be. He calls him to be a missionary. Anyone here know any missionaries? Does anyone know a missionary? Anyone here saved? See, here's what, I, here's what kills me about, about what we do with theology in the church too often. What's a missionary? See, we would define it probably along the lines of someone who travels to other places to share the gospel. They raise support, they go off, they get trained, they share the gospel. See, yes, that's a distant missionary, and there's a place for that. However, you know what a missionary is? It's another name for a saved person. A missionary is someone who goes and tells people who God is who goes and tells people what God has done for them. And I'm not talking about your personal experience with Jesus. I'm talking about the functional reality of what God has done for you. Saved you by himself, from himself, and for himself, and saves other people in the same way, by grace through faith. And all of us are saved to be missionaries. Now, how many of you don't feel well-equipped to share the gospel? Right? How well-equipped was this guy? Well, well, Jesus, what if I don't know how to answer the questions? You didn't ask him that. You do want to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have, but what is the reason for the hope that you have? His name is Jesus, ultimately. It's not the, the robustness of the presentation or your ability to answer every intellectual objection. Please understand there's a place for apologetics. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. But apologetics never saved anyone. The gospel is the only thing that God uses to save people. So my friends, if you are saved, you are fully equipped to go and tell people what God has done for you. I think what happens too often, at least for myself, maybe for you, is I forget who God is and who I am in Christ and what he has done for me and what my identity in him is and the joy of walking and trusting him. Amen? Do you see the grace of God at work in leaving this guy behind? They told Jesus to leave and he left, but he left a gospel witness, didn't he? Why would he leave a gospel witness among these people? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Because, yes, Jesus came to defeat the works of the devil, but per the picture on the front of your bulletin, Jesus also came to seek and save that which was lost. Amen? So Jesus went across the lake to seek and save that which was lost. And then when he saves those who were lost, he calls us to join him on mission of seeking and saving those who are lost. And our understanding rightly landed us, but God, I can't save anyone. And he would say, you're absolutely correct. But I entrust you the gospel. Because how will people believe unless they hear? And how will people hear unless someone preaches? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? So Jesus called this demoniac to go and tell what God had done for him. Now, we're clearly not like this demoniac, right? 
or are we a whole lot more like him than we ever realized? I don't know what the rest of his life looked like, but I'm sure it was a process of sanctification where at times he would fall back into sin, perhaps at times he would be cast in sin, but God would cause to bring to completion what he began in this man's life, if the man is a truly saved man. So go back to where we started. The lost person comes up to you and says to you, do me a favor, will you let me know exactly what it is that Jesus Christ has done for you? And what does that have to do with me? How would you answer that question? Because ultimately, that's the question we're called to be prepared to give an answer for. What did Jesus do for you? Your answer shouldn't be, well, he fixed my marriage. That's great side benefit of the gospel, if that's true. He got me out of debt. Spiritually, yes. Practically, maybe, biblical principles of financial stewardship got you out of debt. That's great, but that's not really the answer we're after. What did Jesus do for you? Jesus saved you. Jesus brought you from insanity to sanity. Jesus brought you from death to life. Jesus brought you from enmity with God to friendship with God. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 4.4. I told you 10, 15 minutes ago, look it up. I can't leave you there. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. God has given us eyes to see truth. Amen? Ephesians 2.2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. God has saved us from being sons of disobedience to being sons of obedience to the most high God. What has God done for you? God saved me from death to life. God saved me from aimlessly wandering through life to walking in life for his glory and joy. God saved me from blindness to sight. God saved me from insanity to sanity. God saved me from enmity with him to peace with him, and he offers to do the same for you. Amen? I decided to make a little list as I was studying this week, and the list is way, way too short, but I'll give you the, the highlighted ones I had. Who is God to you? You ever just sit and ponder Scripture and think as a Christian, as one saved by grace through faith, who is God to us? He's our advocate. He's our friend. He's our propitiation. He's our counselor, helper, foundation, safety, shelter, father, healer, hope, creator, recreator, savior, comforter. We could go on and on and on. You see, here's, here's the foundation upon which we need to rest, and here's the foundation upon, all, all, upon which all of our works need to be done. Who are you in Christ? Who is Christ? What has Christ done for you? Do you know there's no such thing as independence? Did you know that? There's no such thing as independence. The question is simply, what are you dependent upon? And in the spiritual realm, you get one of two daddies. The devil or God himself. 
You're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. But here's the beauty as you remember both the power and the grace and mercy and love of God all mixed together with his holiness and justice and wrath. My friends, stop and think about this. The power of God which was once against you is now for you. And the person of God who was an enemy of yours is now a father and friend. As we walk in the wisdom of God, we can rejoice that we are cared for perfectly. And as we do that and see him care for us perfectly, little by little, more and more, day by day, we delight in going and telling people who God is, what God has done for us and offers to them by the finished work upon the cross and the empty tomb. So that question we started with, you might not have had someone ask you that this week, but if we tie that into Patty's prayer request, isn't that in fact one of the ways we should be praying and attempting to live? Living our lives amongst lost people so that they might ask us to tell them who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and what that has to do with them. How do you pull that off? You want to know the really, really easy answer? Trust God. Love your neighbors. See what he does. Here's what it looks like functionally. In the household of God, we constantly remind one another of who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us and what he has saved us to. And by constantly, I mean almost constantly. And we do that so that we can go out into a lost world and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, the, the church is not men, and I'm not saying this is the case of our church. I'm just drawing a wide swath analogy. The church is not meant to be a doctor's office where doctors simply put band-aids on each other and nurses in the office for self-care. The church is meant to be a rescue mission at the gates of hell where we go out into a lost world and tell people what God has done for us and what it means to them. Now you might ask, but, but do I have to? What if I don't want to? My friends, you missed the whole point. Go back and remind yourself daily what Christ has done for you, who you were and who you are. And I guarantee if you are truly saved, the Holy Spirit will do exactly what he says he will do. And he will give you an increasing desire to go and tell people. Now maybe you're saying, well, I can't do that. You're right, you can on your own. But remember, it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. What a great story of God's grace. A man possessed by at least 2,000 demons, living outside of the population, amongst the tombs, cutting himself with stones, under guard, breaking shackles, running into the wilderness, screaming night and day. And Jesus shows up and tells the demons to get out. And the next thing you know, this lunatic is sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. What kind of power is this? Imagine if that same God said, fear not, for I am with you. 
Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What, 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 what would that be like if God promised us that? Huh. Do you know how much God loves you? Do you know how powerful God is? Do you know how good and kind and gracious and merciful God truly is? When Jesus invites us to trust him, the only reason we wouldn't want to is because we momentarily fell back into the insanity we had in the tombs. Come on out of the tombs. Jesus is trustworthy and kind and gracious and good. Remember the love of God. Remember the power of God. Walk in both and proclaim the gospel. Father, I thank you for, for the work you did in the land of the Gadarenes. Lord Jesus, it's fun to think about the fact that we wouldn't have strategized that trip. If we knew a storm was coming, we would have avoided the lake. We knew as Jews that there was a Gentile demoniac across the lake. Well, we would have probably figured he had it coming. Heard of pigs hanging around, that ain't kosher. But Lord Jesus, you don't walk by human wisdom, you walk by true wisdom. Lord God, for those of us who are in Christ, our lives are a joyful daily struggle to trust in the wisdom of man and the world or the wisdom of God. Lord Jesus, help us to see the joy of your wisdom and the insanity of the world. Help us to remember who we were apart from you. Maybe we weren't as, as messed up looking physically and practically as this demoniac. In fact, I'm sure none of us were. But we were just pigs with lipstick. Unkosher, unclean, unacceptable to come to God. Whitewashed tombs, Jesus, you would call it. But Lord God, you did a mighty work by your mighty power through your mighty grace. Lord, help our sin in the flesh be massive to us so that your grace might be even more massive. Help us to rejoice in your grace and mercy and love. And Holy Spirit, give us a desire to be in your word, to meditate upon your word, to think about your word, to talk about your word, even to open our lives to be encouraged by your word from one another. Lord, functionally speaking, there are ways where each and every one of us here walks in insanity. We doubt your goodness. We doubt your wisdom. Lord God, help us and help us help one another in that, to preach to one another, to encourage one another in truth, to remember, Lord Jesus, what you have done for us. So Lord, let us encourage one another with your gospel. Give us opportunities to go out into the world and to preach your gospel. And Lord, cause us to go out there with clear eyes. The people from this area told you to go away. And often when we preach the gospel to people, they will tell us to go away. But Lord, insofar as we realize the acceptance we have with you, we will never feel hopeless or despondent if the world does not accept us. Lord, help us to understand that we have received your favor by grace through faith.
and help us to walk in the confidence of people who know with absolute certainty that we are children of God. Lord, help us to not seek to make much of our name, but to make much of your name as we go and tell people what you have done, as we walk in the power of that, trusting in you by your power for your glory. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would use this text and even this sermon, whatever was from you in it, to sanctify us, to allow us to more clearly and fully see you, Lord Jesus, for who you are and the gospel for what it truly is. God, you are amazing, you are gracious, you are merciful, you are holy and just. And it's unfathomable to think that we can call you Father through the finished work of our Savior, in whose name we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen.